Psalm 102, verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to You. Do not hide Your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline Your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. Skip down to verse 16. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Lord, truly a psalm of praise. And I ask, Lord, simply this morning that You would open our ears and our eyes to know the truth in this psalm. Teach us. Be our rabbi. Lead us through these things so that we can understand from Your perspective and by Your desire what You would have us know from this marvelous psalm. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Silence fell across the land of Israel. Last Sunday, there was a a moment of silence held for the country. Because last Sunday marked a day of mourning and fasting, especially for more observant Jews, it would be a day of fasting. Jews worldwide may be aware of the day. Many are not really observing it so much anymore, but... For those who are, those who think about it, it's a, it's a somber, serious day. Last Sunday on the Hebrew calendar was the 9th of Av, which is also known as Tisha B'Av. Now, I've shared this several times over the years. We've looked at Tisha B'Av and its meaning, what's behind it, but it seems appropriate to repeat it here and at least to get the bead on what that holiday observance is all about. And when I say holiday, I don't mean frivolity. I mean a holy day, a day of very serious and somber reflection. Yom Kippur is such a day, and that's coming up in our October time frame, the month of Tishri. But that's more of a a day of repentance and somberness. This is a day of somberness over some of the horrors that have befallen the Jewish people. Tisha B'Av. The old rabbis teach that it was on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, that the children of Israel lost faith at Kadesh Barnea. That was that that region on the edge of the promised land. They were about to go into the promised land. They had sent in the spies. The spies came back. Ten of them said, we cannot take these people. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can absolutely take this people. Besides, God said we could take this people and wants us to go have this land. But faith failed the people of Israel. And so on Tisha B'Av, God turned them around and sent them back into the wilderness where they would be wandering for 38 more years. On Tisha B'Av in 586 B.C., Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, the first temple. On Tisha B'Av, same day in the calendar year, 70 A.D., the second temple was flattened, raised to the ground by the Romans, completely wiped out. It was on the 9th of Av in 135 A.D., following a bloody massacre at Betar, where all Jews were finally banished from the land by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Now, there's always been a Jewish presence, and the weak and the infirm were allowed to stay, but the rest were driven out completely from their homeland, and Hadrian at the time renamed the land, you Bible students know this, renamed it Palestina, Philistine country. It was a slap. The Philistines hadn't existed for hundreds of years. 
But Hadrian renamed it Palestina as a slap in the face of the Jewish people. He called Jerusalem Alia Capitolina. And for 1,800 years, the Jewish people lived without a homeland. Tisha B'Av, 1290 A.D., all Jews were expelled from England. Don't let that just be a date in history. Think about what that would mean for you if suddenly you found out all Christians were being expelled from the United States. Pack it up. You are no longer welcome in this country. Your citizenship is revoked. You're gone. And that happened to the Jews, 1290, Tisha B'Av. That same day in 1492, while Columbus sailed the ocean blue, all Jews were expelled from Spain simply for being Jewish. And it was on the 9th of Av. Many other catastrophes, tragedies, and turmoils have happened on that day. But on the 9th of Av, 1939, Hitler announced his final solution, the genocide of the Jewish people. So you can see why they would remember the 9th of Av annually as a day of fasting and mourning. But there's a prophecy in Zechariah which I believe speaks directly to this sorrow. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. What Zechariah prophesied is even Tisha B'Av will be turned into not a day of mourning, but a day of gladness, a day of rejoicing. A day when all is finally made right before the Lord. Psalm 102 begins with this inscription, a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. We don't know who wrote Psalm 102. Some would suggest it's David. Some others will date it as late as Daniel saying that perhaps the writer of Psalm 102 was witnessing as he wrote the fall of Jerusalem in 586. Or perhaps Daniel writing from captivity. We don't know, and there's really no way to tell specifically. All you can do is look at the content and make some educated guesses. But what we do know is who spoke this psalm. It is a Savior psalm. And it begins with the cry of an afflicted people, a fainting people, a a complaining Jewish heart. Note those three words just in the title itself. The afflicted, who is faint, who pours out his complaint. Afflicted is to be wretched and poor and humble and lowly. The word is ani in the Hebrew. Ani, afflicted. To be faint is ya'atop, which is to say overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, there's there's no answer, there's nothing I can do, this is beyond me, says the one who is afflicted. And then finally the word complaint is used, but it's not complaint like we would complain, my dinner's too cold. It's the word see, which means anguished lament. By the way, on Tisha B'Av, the scripture that is read in the synagogue is Lamentations. They will go to synagogue and even today read through the Lamentations because it is a lament. And this comes off, at least at the outset, Psalm 102 as a wretched, overwhelmed lament. This is a person in deep pain. No whiner, not just complaining, but someone who is in serious hurt and affliction. And you know what's interesting to me? For all the praises of the 150 Psalms, this is very common. 
affliction, pain, sorrow, mourning, hurting. In the book of praises, no less. The, the book that's set up to be worshipped to God is filled with hard times. It's filled with broken hearts, affliction, fainting, complaining. These things are not just common to the Psalms, however. The Psalms mirror human life. The Psalms, so many people love them because they reach right into human emotion. They get the heart. They speak what a lot of us don't speak out loud when someone says, Hey, how you doing? And you say, Fine. And you're not fine. But you don't want to be a drag. You want to be a bummer on someone's day. What's going on? Not much. You know, but deep inside, I'm, I'm feeling hurt that I, I would love to talk to somebody about, but I don't want people to think I'm a whiner and complainer. So we hold that stuff underneath this superficial happiness. And I'm a relatively happy guy. I mean, I truly am most of the time. Doesn't mean life's not hard. Doesn't mean there's not pain underneath. And I'm not saying this to bum you all out. But to remind you of this truth, and I've I've come to this point in my life, I truly believe what I'm about to say to you, that joy, gladness, and exaltation are unusual, they are abnormal, and they are supernatural. That is, they're cultivated and sustained by trusting Jesus. You want to know joy, you got to know Jesus. You want to experience true gladness, not the superficial tripe that the world seems to hand us, but a real, deep, abiding gladness. It comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know someone might say, you're telling me I can't be happy without Jesus? Yes. Let's be clear. You cannot find true happiness outside of Jesus Christ. Well, but I don't know. I've seen movies where people found it. They find it on the commercial. I've got friends who have settled into retirement. They seem to be just doing great. Really? See, I don't buy it. You can find hints of happiness in this world. Blips of bliss. Peeps of pleasure. The occasional cup of cheer. But do you want to be joyful? You will not be joyful outside of Jesus. True gladness, true joy, it comes through the Son of God. And that's where we're going this morning. So heads up, that's where we're headed. But we've got to go through a rough patch before we can get there. Because again, this is a prayer of the afflicted when he's faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. There are three parts to the psalm. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down ahead. We'll use this as our outline. The prayer of the afflicted, verses 1 through 11. The praise of Zion, verses 12 through 22. And finally, number three, the promise of the Son, verses 23 through 28. So again, the prayer of the afflicted, first 11 verses. The praise of Zion, verses 12 through 22. And the promise of the Son, verses 23 through 28. Let's look at the first 11 verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. 
I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird. Zippor is the word in the Hebrew, a sparrow. I've become like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. The prayer of the afflicted. What's interesting about the prayer of the afflicted is there are three ways to understand it, three ways to view it. Two are prophetic and one is a very simply graphic picture of sin. You read through these 11 verses and what is described for you is the result, the outcome of sin in a person's life. Sin consumes. Sin consumes. Verse 3 again reads, my days have been consumed in smoke. Sin does that. It overwhelms like smoke. It billows up until it's all around you and you're coughing and choking and hacking. And it didn't start that way, but it ends that way. Sin is a consuming thing. Psalm 31 verse 10 says, My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. And my body has wasted away. Sin is not a moment. Sin is not a a, a single activity or behavior. Sin is something that consumes a human life. And anyone who's lived any amount of time begins to recognize that. How about Jeffrey Epstein? You know, here's a guy, incredibly wealthy, considered by some very powerful, moving in powerful circles, owned his own island, which itself was an island of depravity. And all this stuff coming out that really no one wants to hear about how sick and twisted this guy was who ended up dead in a jail cell. I won't say how he died. I'm not sure. (laughs) Jeffrey Epstein. You know, at one point, he was a young Jewish boy. Loved by his parents, I assume. Little kid. No one would have imagined where he would end up. Sin consumes. Sin consumes a life. And sin sickens. Verses 4 and 5. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. I, I forget to eat my bread because of the loudness of my groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. There is a physical reaction or outcome of sin. You see, our, our country, our, our nation, actually Western culture, really thinks that we can divide spirit and soul and flesh. That we can keep them separate. We can secularize them so that what I do in my flesh doesn't really affect my mind. Or what what I have going on in my thought life has no real impact on my flesh. And none of that's true. We've talked about that you are, I am, we are triune beings. We are created in the image of God who is triune. And we are triune, soul, spirit, and body. But we don't separate those out. What you do in the flesh is going to affect your thinking. And what happens in the spiritual world, which is why worship and being in the Word of God and praying in the Spirit is so vitally important because what takes place in us spiritually will impact our thinking and have an effect on our physical bodies. You can't separate it out. Sin sickens. Even a sin of the mind, a sin of the thought life will have dramatic impact on the physical body as well as on the spirit. Psalm 38 verse 3 says, There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. And you can read these first 11 verses of Psalm 102 as a statement of what happens in sin. 
It consumes, it sickens. What else does it do? It isolates. Note verse 6. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake and have become like a sparrow on a housetop. Let me explain something to you. These birds are all out of place. These birds are all isolated in a place they don't belong. Pelicans don't live in the wilderness. Pelicans live by the seashore. Owls don't live in waste places. Owls live in the forest. And when was the last time you saw a lonely sparrow? Sparrows don't run by themselves. They run together, two, three, chittering around, flying all over the place. They're very social little birds. But all three of these birds are a description of isolation. And that's what sin does. And by the way, the devil is a liar. He is the father of lies. And what he says to you and to me is, you will be out of place if you don't sin like everybody else. If you don't do what the world around you is doing, you're going to be isolated. You're going to be left alone. So you need to follow with the crowd. You need to do what other people are doing. And ultimately, it's the opposite that happens. You follow that. You fall into sin. And you feel isolation. You become guilty. No one else has done what I've done. You feel shame. I'm all alone in this. I I could not possibly share this with all of you because if you knew, if you had any idea what I have done, how I have sinned, and sin isolates us. And it's remarkable because, because the devil just laughs. He got you thinking, if I don't do it, I'll be isolated when the very outcome of sinning is isolation itself. Bringing shame on mind and of heart. And ultimately, sin humiliates. Verse 8 of the psalm, My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. And you know who uses your name as a curse more than anybody else? It's the devil. When you do sin that he talked you into, or he led you into, or he tempted you to follow through with, then he's the one turning around going, Accusation. Guilty. Shameful. Humiliating. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure, your sin will find you out. And none of us like to talk about it. We don't want our sin to find us out, but it does. And it's consuming, sickening, isolating, and humiliating. And by the way, all four of these things were felt by Jesus on the cross. This perfect, sinless, wonderful man was consumed by the sin of humanity, sickened by it as He bore it on His shoulders, isolated from the entire world as He was lifted up on that cross, humiliated before all to see. Jesus took all that, experienced all that. Why did He do it? For the joy set before Him. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus knew something about going through pain for the sake of joy. Understood something about taking the sorrows of others on himself, wearing it all as a man of sorrows because he saw joy through the darkness, and you are that joy. Something we talked about years ago in the barn, we stumbled across this reality that you are the joy set before Him. That from the cross, He looks out and in His pain and anguish and affliction, He looks out, sees you and says, this is worth it. She is my joy. He is my joy. 
The joy set before Jesus that his, his family would be home. That His children would be saved. And this would all be worth it. But this psalm, back to Psalm 102, is more about pain than simply the pain of sin. So while we can make that uh, comparison and we can say, wow, those first 11 verses, yeah, sin is like that. It's much more than that. This is a profoundly prophetic prayer. And it's a prayer of an afflicted people. Because the psalm prays with amazing accuracy, it speaks to that event that took place over a period of 12 or so years, 1933 to 1945. It's a psalm of the Holocaust. Now, some of you might say, well, I mean, that's, that's weird. I can accept that prophecy was fulfilled in the past, but prophecy spoken way back there 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, fulfilled in 1933? Oh, that's weird. Why? Why wouldn't we understand that? Well, how do you know? Let's take a look at it. Think about it. By the way, Thursday of this last week, the 15th of August, was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. 75 years ago. It concerns me because the further out from the Holocaust we get, the more people forget. And though there are Holocaust memorials around the world, people are denying it, ignoring it. I was talking to someone after first service, and they were making the point that, you know, a lot of people have faced genocide. It's not just the Jewish people. And I said, you're right, it's not just the Jewish people. But how many people face genocide like they did and are continuing to be maligned today? How many people have gone through what the Jewish people have gone through literally over centuries and are still targeted for one reason... They're Jewish. I know of no other people. Other people groups have, yes, gone through extremely hard and painful things, but the people of God, the chosen people of God, have had a target on their backs since God called Abraham. And it's a stunning truth, a reality, the Holocaust. While the world turned a blind eye to the people of God, God had already spoken centuries before exactly what would happen. In fact, in this psalm, God had already spoken of the Holocaust of the Jews to come and the hope of Israel that would follow. The hope, Hatikvah, is the national anthem of Israel and it means my hope. My hope. And it was hope for the land. But but watch this. Look again back at verse 3. For my days have been consumed in smoke. And my bones have been scorched like a hearth. That's not just picturesque or graphic uh, description. That happened. And you all know, if you know the history at all, you know six million Jews were massacred in the Holocaust. Most through the gas chambers. Their bodies burned in the crematoriums. Their bones scorched like a hearth. Literally. Auschwitz-Birkenau, Bergen-Belsen, Dachau, Treblinka, you could go on naming and naming and naming because across the European countryside was dotted with 15,000 death camps. I mean, it's it's overwhelming even to think of. 15,000 death camps at that time. All set up within that short decade of what we call the Holocaust today. If you go to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, 
the Holocaust Memorial, and you walk through it. When you come out the other side, there's a special memorial. They call it the Children's Memorial. You go in there, and it's, it's beautiful. It's stunning. I've described it before. There's a single candle in the middle of the, of the memorial, but you can't see the single candle because of the way mirrors are set up all over the place. It just looks like millions, a little over a million children that were killed in the Holocaust. And you walk through, and it's dark, except for those candles. Just look, it looks like you're in a room filled with a million candles. And as those candles flicker and burn from the one candle that's being reflected on all the walls, you just hear a quiet voice in Hebrew speaking names, just reading constantly, 24-7, the names of the children whose bones were scorched like a hearth in the Holocaust. Those brick ovens. They went 24-7, especially in the final years, belching out smoke and ash from the blackened chimneys as it would settle almost like snow on people. Human ash. I recommend to you highly a book called Night. Some of you have read Night. It's by Elie Weisel. He was a a sufferer of the Holocaust. He survived the Holocaust. A short book. It's like 85, 90 pages. It's a quick read, but it's a painful read. But I think everybody ought to read Night. He describes everything. He, he describes the trip when he first got collected with his fellow Jews and, and shoved into a boxcar, a cattle car, that was wall-to-wall people. And they began this journey. And, and right after beginning the journey, uh, Ellie Weisel remembers a woman who was a friend, who their family, they had had her and her husband over to dinner, but at the cattle cars, they were divided. Her husband taken and her two oldest sons taken one direction, and she and her youngest son taken the other and put in separate cars, and she lost it. And within hours of setting off on this long train journey, she began to scream, The fire! The fire! I see the fire! I see the flames! And, and everybody's in the car saying, Shut up! Be quiet! What are you doing? Don't draw attention to us! She would be quiet for a little while, and then she'd start to shriek again about the flames. Ultimately, true story, Ellie witnessed this. Other people in the car began to beat her to get her to quiet down, knocking her with blows that should have killed her. She finally quieted down and settled into a corner while her, while her child held her hand, scared to death. And a day would go by, and they continued on, in this boxcar. And all of a sudden, she started again. The flames! I see the flames! The fire! We see... And they shut her up again. And finally, they reached sight of their destination, Birkenau. And they saw flames. And they saw fire. Elie Weisel talked about a morning when he was standing in this concentration camp holding a, a small paper cup of thick black coffee as ashes fell from the sky into the dark drink, and he realized what it was. And Psalm 102, verse 9 says, "For uh, Sorry, Psalm 102, verse 9 is the wrong psalm. It says, For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. He described that so often the ash was falling, there was no way not to get it on your bread or in your coffee or in what little scant food was offered to you. Elie Weisel said, quote, starvation wasn't limited to stale bread, but often to what was on top of it. 
And if you look back at at verse 8, it says, My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. Star of David is a symbol of pride. It's on the, the Israeli flag today. But in those years, it was a, a yellow patch with the word Judan written upon it and sewn to the clothing and used to isolate and disparage and to disdain the Jewish people. And if you want to take the time to do it, and I'm not going to take any more time this morning, I've already taken too much, but verses 1 through 11 describes in brutal detail the Holocaust of the last century. And you can make parallels. My bones clinging to my flesh, verse 5, when the Allies finally liberated Auschwitz and went into it, what horrified them more than the bodies piled up and all of the crematoriums blowing ash, what mortified them more than that was to see the living souls of people whose bones were clinging to their flesh, absolutely emaciated, almost unrecognizable as human beings. The psalm describes that. Psalm describes many other things in these first 11 verses. And you hear a people afflicted, a people in pain. But listen, get this, aside from these dramatic pictures that we can draw, you might ask, how can we be sure that it really is a psalm of the Holocaust? Hey, it's because of what comes next. Part 2 in our notes, the praise of Zion. Watch this, verse 12. But you, O Lord, abide forever. And your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her. For the appointed time has come. And it did. The appointed time. A time, I believe, God set on His clockwork. Hitler's final solution to rid the world of the Jews actually became the catalyst for their very survival as a people. Verse 14, Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. And that is exactly what happened immediately following the Holocaust. There was pity. The world for a moment felt compassion for the Jewish people. Prior to that, however, there was pleasure in her stones. That is, pleasure in the stones of Zion. Pleasure in the stones of Jerusalem. It's a strange phrase. You'll find pleasure in her stones? Some of you have felt that pleasure. If you've gone to Jerusalem, you've looked at the stones. Stones unearthed. Stones that used to be a part of the temple complex all the way back in 70 A.D. They were thrown off the temple. Massive stones piled up on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And and you walk around Jerusalem. You see old walls that date all the way back to the Jebusites. Walls that date back to the days of David and to Herod. Streets that Herod built. And you see, and for some reason, you just feel pleasure in seeing these stones. But the people did. It's so fascinating to me how how history shows us this picture that for 1,800 years there was nothing but silence really from the Jewish people living in dispersion, the diaspora, places all around the world remembering the Sabbath and every year saying next year in Jerusalem. They never forgot the longing for the land, but it became a quiet thing until about the mid-1800s. And all of a sudden, Jewish people started waking up. Started finding a desire There was a groundswell of desire, completely out of the blue, you might think, to go back to the land of Israel. The Zionist movement 
led by one Theodore Herzl, who would never see the land, would never see the fulfillment of the dream, but he held the first Zionist conference in Basel, Switzerland in 1898. And there was a sense of pleasure for her stones. The people wanted to go home, wanted to be back. But before that could happen, the Holocaust struck. Again in 19... 33. In 1947, as dust and ash settled across Europe, and the entire world finally began to realize what had actually taken place, the horror of the Holocaust, it's amazing that the nations felt pity for her dust. Even as verse 14 tells us, pity for her dust. There was an unusual moment of compassion for the Jews. Or guilt, maybe a little guilt was mixed in. But at a stunning vote at the United Nations, a a Jewish homeland was carved out, a tiny sliver of land in the Middle East, in the land of Israel. They were going to go home. And they began to make their way back there in droves. And on May 14, 1948, the appointed time came and Israel declared its independence and immediately five Arab nations attacked. (laughs) It's just, even as I tell the story again, It's remarkable to me. Why would you care about this tiny sliver of land and this tiny little group of maligned people? Why would you care so much to attack? And they were severely outmanned, heavily outgunned, but Israel won its independence. Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, all attacked from all angles. It was a multi-front war against a people who had nothing who came out of the poverty of the Holocaust and into the land only to be attacked in this way. And yet, while they lost Jerusalem, they won Israel. They won their independence. They won that war. They drove the Arab armies back. Then in 1967, Israel won Jerusalem. The reunification of Jerusalem for the first time in 1800 plus years, the Jewish people now were not only in their homeland, but in their home capital. It's a wonderful story. Who has, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Isaiah prophesies, chapter 66, verse 8, Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be forth, brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Psalm 102, verse 15, So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. God saw. God answered. And so we see in the first half of the psalm this cry of the afflicted heart of, of, I believe it is a picture of the Jewish people in Holocaust, but immediately followed by compassion, a moment of pity, and the restoration and praise of Zion, uh, of Jerusalem, of a return of the people. By the way, note this. In verses 16 and 17, you might read those. In fact, 15, 16, and 17, you might read and say, well, that didn't happen. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the servants found pleasure and there was pity. Nations, fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. Eh, No, I I haven't seen that. He has has built up Zion. I mean, Zion has been built up remarkably over the years, but he has appeared in his glory. Well, that didn't happen. He's regarded the prayer of the destitute. I believe he has, but and has not despised their prayer. But, But when has he done all of these things? We talked about this Wednesday. 
This is in the prophetic perfect. That is, all of these phrases, the Lord has built up, the Lord has appeared, the Lord has regarded, the Lord has not despised, are all in the perfect tense of the Hebrew language, which is a tense that is so certain of future fulfillment, it's written down like it's already happened. Which is why the psalmist is able to write, the Lord has built up Zion, He will. And it is so absolutely certain to happen that the psalmist writes it a thousand years before Christ as if it's a done deal. That's what I love about our faith. Our faith is a done deal. Do you know that? I shared this Wednesday night. I'll share it again this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes, He has seated us with Him in heavenly places. That's one of those phrases that you read it and say, Well, my chair is comfy, but this is not heavenly places. How can He say He has seated us? Because it is so absolutely assured. God says, write it down as if it's happened. It's a done deal. And that same promise has been made to the Jewish people. That same promise that is a prophetic promise of the praise of Zion. And it's not Zion receiving praise. It's Zion giving out praise to the Lord. So we see the Holocaust. We see the praise of Zion. And praises are coming, by the way, up and out of Zion. If you look at verse 18, this will be written for the generation to come. That a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The point of the whole thing is the praise of the Lord. For a generation to come. That is a very interesting phrase in Hebrew. It's Lador Acharon. And that phrase means the generation at the last. The final generation. The hindermost, you might say. The prophetic psalm can only be understood fully by the final generation. Welcome to it. Welcome to Lador Acharon. I got nothing for that. Welcome to the last generation. Thank you. Now some are sitting there going, still not sure I buy it. Still not sure I want to hear this is the last generation. I'm kind of hoping there will be multiple generations after this. I, I'm not hoping for that. Really? You think we're, we're right here at the end? I think we're right here at the end that I get grumpy like Marge Kimball. For the last two years, some of you may not know this, Marge passed away. Her memorial service is this next Saturday. You are all invited. It will be a day of celebration. Two years ago, Marge had a stroke, was in the hospital. And from that point all the way to her passing, she was a little grumpy. And I mean this with all due respect to Marge. Her grumpiness was based on the fact that she was still here. Why am I still here? Her daughter told me this morning, she said, You know, I, I wonder if the reason why she was still here for those two years is God didn't just put her in time out for being grumpy. <laughs> Oh, going to be grumpy about this? You're stuck. Two more years. Hey, Marge's attitude was right. Was correct. Looking forward to where we're going. That's the point of the whole thing. And this being the last generation, I'm convinced of it. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32, learn the parable from the fig tree. And the fig tree portrays Israel clearly in the scriptures. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Is the branch tender? Has the nation put forth its leaves? 
unquestionably. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, and you are that people. When the psalm was written, he said, I'm right, this is written down because there will be a generation when people praise the Lord for what He has done. What is that? Afflicted Israel, back in the land, the praise of Zion lifted up to the king. And by the way, Jesus is praised in Zion, even today. I hear it from time to time. I've been a part of it. I love it. Southern steps of the temple, gathering in our little group of 35, 40 people, singing praises. Praises to Jesus Christ are arising out of Zion. Jewish people are getting saved in Zion today. This psalm is being fulfilled, as it were, before our very eyes. Verse 19, For He looked down from His holy height, from heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner. Think He doesn't hear you? To set free those who were doomed to death. Think He doesn't see you? That men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Has that yet happened? No, but it's happening. It is coming. It's absolutely assured. The peoples, the nations, the kings, every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather in Jerusalem and will lift up praise to the Lord. It has not ever happened. It will happen. When all the world worships the name of Jesus out of Zion, the praise from Zion. Isaiah said in Isaiah 11 verse 10, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Remember Jesse had David, who had his sons all the way down the line to a Jewish boy named Jesus. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. This root of Jesse, this Lord to whom the nations resort, seek, inquire of, consult, none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this is where my blood gets pumping. This is where the psalm starts to get exciting for me. This is who Psalm 102 is really about. You see, while it prophetically absolutely indicates Israel in its affliction, the voice that we hear crying out in the psalm is not the voice of the Jews, it's the voice of a Jew by the name of Yeshua. This is Jesus crying out. And it brings us to the promise of the Son. Number three in your notes, the promise of the Son. Psalm 102 Verse 23, He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. And so, for a moment, after the bright praise of Zion, we return to the voice of affliction. The voice that cries out in the first 11 verses. And by the way, the voice who says in verse 10, because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up. And cast me away. Jesus on the cross lifted up. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He said he was lifted up on the cross of Calvary at Golgotha. Nailed to that cross. Cast away from humanity. 
on that horrible day. And why? Because of God's indignation and wrath against sin that Jesus had all over him. This is the prayer of the afflicted Christ. And he speaks those words again in verses 23 and 24. But listen, understand the reason for this. Why this return after the praise of Zion? Why suddenly do we sound like Jesus is in Gethsemane? He's weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. Remember, Jesus was 32, 33 years old when He died. Short life lived. Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. He calls out. He says in His affliction. And verses 23 and 24 are a temporary darkening of the scene for the stages that are about to come. These set the stage now for the final four verses to shine with the brightest and fullest sense of the Word. And now we can start the teaching. Please turn to Psalm 102. That was all introduction. Verse 25. Of old, you founded the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. And even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. And if this were simply the psalm of the afflicted psalmist, if this was simply your average person crying out, what you would hear in those last four verses is a declaration of deepest faith. Someone in their pain crying out with joyful praise, naming God as as Savior. Someone who knows where their life belongs. But it's not the psalmist speaking here. And guess what? It's not Jesus speaking in these last four verses either. It's not Him trying to spark faith in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, well, who is it then? It's clearly Jesus speaking in verses 23 and 24. Clearly the prayer of this afflicted Messiah in the first 11 verses. And then the praise of Zion that follows that. But how can you say suddenly this is not Him speaking verses 25 through 28? How do we know? Well, we turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. So turning your Bibles there for a moment. And as you're turning, listen up. This is a Savior psalm. Unquestionably, and I am so thankful because honestly, God kept bringing me back to it. I didn't have it on my list. I have considered it, I've taught it in the past as a psalm of afflicted Israel. A psalm of the Holocaust. I've looked at it that way, I've considered it that way before. But the Lord kept bringing us back here because this is a Savior psalm. And we know that Jesus saves. used to have that bumper sticker on the back of my Toyota Corolla S5. 1974, great little white car. I've told you, we called it the maggot. On the back window. With, with a rainbow and clouds on either side of it, because back then the church still you know, owned the rainbow. It said, Jesus saves. I love that sticker. I drove that car all around, you know, proudly. And, of course, someone cut me off and it honked. And I go, oh, wait, wait, Jesus saves! You know. We know Jesus saves. We know Jesus saves. How do you know Jesus saves? Listen. We know Jesus saves because Jesus was saved. 
We know Jesus saves now because God saved Jesus then. Paul writes it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's belong to Christ at His coming. We know Jesus saved because Jesus got saved. And the proof is in the resurrection. We know we have a resurrection because Jesus was resurrected. We know we have a Savior because the Savior Himself walked exactly through what we must we walk through to, to be saved. Came out the other side of death, resurrected. Jesus saves. But get this, before I even read from Hebrews, understand the last four verses of Psalm 102 are God the Father responding to Jesus the Son. That the psalm, prior to that, verses 1 through 24, we see a prayer of Jesus. Verses 25 through 28 is God's answer to that prayer. And this is huge. Watch this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. And like a garment, they also will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That is God the Father talking to Jesus the Son. And you need to understand that. If you don't understand that, the psalm is simply a prayer of the afflicted. If you get that, you recognize the psalm is the prayer of Jesus and God answers it at the end of the psalm. Well, how do we know that's God speaking to Jesus? I mean, look at verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of earth. That's obviously God. And why would God call Jesus Lord? That can't be God talking to the Son. Well, it absolutely can be God talking to the Son. You know, they call each other Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110, next Sunday. I mean, we've talked about that one so much in the Savior's Psalms. God the Father and God the Son have no problem acknowledging the deity of each other. And this is Father God saying, You, Lord, to Jesus, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens and the work are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Father saying this to the Son. How do you know? I know because back in verse 8, it tells us, Of the Son, He says... Of the Son, he says. And then he quotes Psalm 45, Psalm 40, or Isaiah 61, and then verse 10, and, and you, Lord. What I'm saying to you is that God the Father, go back to Psalm 102. You can keep your finger in Hebrews 1 if you want to look back and forth and, and kind of compare. But what we learn by the Spirit in Hebrews chapter 1 is this is very clearly God answering the cry of the Christ. And understood that way, it is absolutely profound, this father-to-son promise. The significance to you and to me this morning is massive. Are you afflicted? Are you overwhelmed? Are you anguished? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're trucking along just fine this morning. And to that I say, maybe you should be. 
Maybe you should have a little anguish in your life if you don't. Maybe trouble needs to come. Maybe you're a little too happy and slappy and peppy. Maybe it's time to go through some rough stuff. What are, you, what are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that maybe our happiness and our contentment and our satisfaction with this life needs to be challenged by eternity. Maybe we need to stop trying so hard to find pleasure now for the sake of eternity then. And again, I say this as, as typically a pretty positive guy. But the point of the entire psalm is eternity is at hand. Eternity is the implication. Listen to this again, verse 25. God the Father speaking to Jesus the Son. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Well, I thought God created the world. Exactly. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being through Him, that is Jesus. And apart from Him, that is Jesus. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Is that not clear? That Jesus has His fingerprints all over creation. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And that is Jesus. Which means not only did He create the universe and the stars and the planets and the heavens and the earth upon which we live, but He created the principalities and the powers and the rulers in the heavenly places. He created the deity of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us in these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also made the world. So understand that. When we slide back to Genesis in two or three weeks now, Lord willing, we open up to Genesis chapter 1 and we begin to read of the creation of the world. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present, making this world what it is. Creating this place. Jesus is all over creation. And by the way, like any artist, I'm sure he enjoys his handiwork. But you know what he's going to do? He's going to throw it away. He's going to roll it up and toss it out thrown away like so much threadbare, worn and torn, dirty laundry. Look at verse 26. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. They who? He's talking about the universe. He's talking about the created world. It's all going to be gone. Isaiah 34, verse 4, All the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Revelation 20, verse 11, remember this, I saw the great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. It's all gone. It's all going to be thrown out. It's all going to be tossed Now, I love the created world. We live in the most beautiful place on earth. I love the Pacific Northwest. I love living on North Whidbey Island. I love the mountains and the trees. I love the Puget Sound. I love the wildlife that we see wandering through our yards. I love creation. The moon this last week was huge. Did you see it? Just massive beaming God's flashlight in the sky. It was huge. And the starry nights, the starry nights up here still really thrill me. 
I had never seen a star before moving up here. I lived in Southern California. We have smog, not stars. So coming up here, it was like, wow. And I love those starry nights. And I love seeing the trees grow and lift up their branches. I'm, I'm right now doing battle with this amazing birch tree in my front yard that we planted as a little sapling. And it's huge. And I'm trying to cut it back without harming it, you know. Because you're supposed to do that. Birch trees are supposed to trim in August. I googled that. I know that, Hillary, so I understand. But its branches are just, and it just keeps growing like this. And I look at that tree and I think of worship. Trees just doing what God created it to do, bring praise and honor and glory to Him. I love that. I love the ocean waves rolling, going down to the beach there underneath the bridge, and, and all the shells that are along the water, and the, and the waves lapping in, and watching the waves and currents move around Deception Pass. I love it. I love the chittering creatures in my yard, flying around, showing up the sparrows in droves. It's beautiful. I love the changing seasons. I love the fall because it's going to change here. It's going to start cooling off again. Rain's going to come back. Some of you are like, oh, what a bummer. Stop complaining. It's beautiful. (laughs) This is God's creation. And we go around these seasonal changes every year. And it speaks to the glory of God. And yes, it is our obligation as created human beings to superintend this planet. But my friends, it's all going to go bye-bye. It's all going to be toast. And that's why I personally cannot stomach the environmentalism that arrogantly says we can save the world. We cannot save this world. Humanity will not save the planet. The world is getting old. It is wearing out. It's getting tired. It cannot. It will not last. Planet Earth, the stars, the moon... The the planets, the universe, it cannot, it will not last. True science recognizes that, knows that to be the case. Everything wears out, and there's nothing you can do about it. Look around, everything wears out. Everything wears out. I'll give you two personal examples. Cheryl saw a picture uh, that was sent to us. Steve Berenson sent this picture that he pulled out of his files or something. From 15 years ago, Barb was sitting in the barn... And I'm sitting in one chair, and Barb Gilmore's sitting in the other, and there's some other people around here whose heads are back to us. And then there's Cheryl standing behind me, and Annette is standing right behind her. And you're laughing, and I, I don't know what, and I'm, I'm smiling. We, we're sharing a moment in the barn, and I think it was like day before the very first Sunday morning as we were clearing out the hay and getting it ready because God was going to do church. And Cheryl saw that picture, and she looked at it. She looked at me, and she goes... Wow, you've aged. <laughs> Thanks, hun. So of you was right on the tip of my tongue. I didn't say it. Hey, everything wears out. The other example, yesterday, we're talking with our foreign exchange student, uh, Valentine, from Belgium. So we're FaceTiming with her and just keeping, keeping in track and talking with her and how, how's life there. And, and right before we were going to talk to her, uh, Cheryl texted her in the morning and said, listen, we can't, we can't talk at noon because Rick has a haircut. Can we talk at 11? And Valentine immediately shot back, well, how long is that going to take? Like two minutes? <laughs> I texted her back, no, five. <laughs> I need a good five minutes for this hair to get cut. Hey, everything wears out. Everything goes away. 
Everything is going to be rolled up like a garment. Everything in this created world except for the joy set before Him, which is you. And it's me. And this is where I start to get so excited. Because because Jesus Christ is unchanging, we will be saved. Because our hope is not in the planet. It is not in this world. It's not in extending life as long as we can. No, it's more like Marge Kimball. How soon do we get to go? Why do we have to be in timeout for these last two years? Why must we stay? It's looking for the hope of heaven. It's eyes wide open because again, Jesus is unchanging. Verse 27, you are the same. Your years will not come to an end, which is why He is the foundation of our faith and He is the hope of eternal life. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8. So you can trust Him. You're good to go. You have solid footing on the foundation of Jesus who lasts forever while this earth will fall apart and will be rolled up like a garment and changed and tossed out. Jesus is the same. 1 John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is true God and eternal life. Get that. Jesus is Himself eternal life. And so the unchangeable promise that the Son has, that He gives, is to His servants and their children. Verse 28, the children of your servants, God talking to Jesus, the children of your servants will continue. And their descendants will be established before you. And that is the ring of eternity. Because God is not committed to saving planet earth. Though He created it gloriously, beautifully to praise Him. He's not committed to saving the planet. He is not committed to saving the universe. He's committed to one purpose that is saving you in Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about. For the sake of His glory. Your salvation that brings glory and honor and praise to who He is. That's what He's doing. And that's what He invites us to get on board with. All these other issues, all these other things that people fight for and stand for, these these things that they think are so important and so true, it's all going away. Human life, saved in Jesus Christ, is all that's going to make it out of this world. And if you are in Christ, that's you this morning. And if you're not in Christ, you're invited to be this morning. I shared this also, first service. You know what I pray for people who are lost? I pray they'll come to the end of themselves. I pray life will fall apart. I pray God will do anything He has to do, use everything at His disposal, even if it's painful and difficulty, even if it's affliction, that He'll use that to bring them to Jesus. That's a little harsh and unloving. It's not unloving when you recognize that this life is a blip compared to eternity. How many times have I said that? The Word makes it clear. That we are not living for this life. What we're living for is that life. And a really good way to put this, understand the whole psalm, the whole psalm in a nutshell, this Savior psalm reveals Messiah's affliction, verses 1 through 11 and 23 and 24. It reveals then, verses 12 through 22, His eagerness for the kingdom, Zion. And finally in verses 25 through 28, We hear God's reply, which is absolutely amazing. What God's reply tells us, listen to it again. 
Of old you have founded the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands, even they will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. But you, you are the same. Your years will not come to an end, and the children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. What that tells us is first creation is only part one of the plan. This is first creation. And it's just part one. When we got done with the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I wanted to get to part two. And ultimately to the final deal. I wanted to get to the end and see what happens. We are in part one right now. And the tragedy of humanity is people living for part one. As if part one was everything. Oh, I'm hurting. I'm in pain in my life. It's it's just taking forever. It's just part one. Yeah, I... I'll share with you this about Christopher, the the young man we're adopting from Ghana. Talked to him yesterday, had a great conversation. Something happened with with Christopher long about springtime. Now you need to know that right now, as of this morning, we're 14 months in working on this adoption. And it's been a big challenge. God has been moving and kicking open doors right and left, and He continues to do that. But we're 14 months. Do you realize how long 14 months is for a 12-year-old boy? It's forever. For me, I'm on this side of it going, we're getting it done, getting the paperwork done, getting it in, taking care of it, it's all fine. And long about springtime of this last year, because we would we talk to Christopher pretty much every day. We'll play Yahtzee with him via Skype and, and have these great conversations. Well, long about spring, we started to notice that Christopher was not his lively self. He was getting sad. Almost every time we talked to him, he'd ask, is the paperwork done? He didn't even know what that meant. Because we knew for us, so the paperwork is whatever they keep asking for. You just keep sending it out, you know. And he just was getting sad. And we, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. How long is it going to be? He started asking how long. And we recognized he was getting weary. This boy was waiting and waiting and waiting. And he didn't see all the behind the scenes stuff. And his life, these 14 months getting so long, yesterday... I'm Skyping with Christopher. He was in a really good mood. Anna Marie was just there. Our other daughter was, was just there visiting and, and spent some time with him. And, and, and he knows. I said to him yesterday, I said, you know, Christopher, we have... Mom has an airline ticket for August 26th. That's a week from Monday. And by the way, we're praying that that will happen. We already have the ticket, but we're waiting for Ghana to say that Cheryl can come. Mom's coming. We're planning on Mom coming on... On August 26th, she's going to be there soon. And he just lit up. Yeah, I know. I know. You know what that means, Dad? I'm coming home. He goes, I'm going to be home by Christmas. (laughs) I said, yeah, you ain't getting nothing. All of a sudden, I realized this yesterday. The light's back in his face. Why? Because he's coming home. Because he knows. Because all his hope for what he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you in that place. I have been waiting and waiting and waiting on the Lord. How long, O Lord? And why do I have to go through what I'm going through? And why the pain that I'm going through? And why this hardship and this struggle? Get me out of this. Heal me in the moment. Make my life better. And those are all the wrong prayers. Prepare me for eternity. That's the right one. Fix my eyes on Jesus. That's a good one. This is part one, Lord. Do whatever you have to do to me in part one so that I can be ready for part two. That's a great prayer.
That's a prayer of faith. Derek Kidner said, so far, this is only half the story. Only a few days of his work, which must run its full term, measured by Messiah's own endless years. And here's the thing. There's old creation, which is planet Earth, and it's going to be rolled up and tossed out. There are new creations in Jesus. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I'm a new creation. Yes, in 15 years I have aged tremendously on the outside. But inside, I am being renewed day by day. So when Cheryl says, boy, you've aged, I say, I am just renewed, baby. I'm better than I ever was. In Jesus, I'm a new creation. Still living in old creation, but guess what? There is the new creation. And it's just around the corner. And that will never grow old. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation 22. You recall, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Zion, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And if you are a new creation in the unchanging Christ, then you know, you can read and see that the children of His servants will continue and their descendants will be established before Him. Forever and ever. Amen. My friends, we're just getting started. This is just part one. And that is my answer. I believe the Bible's answer to how I'm supposed to praise the Lord in affliction. How am I supposed to be glad when I'm overwhelmed or joyful when I'm in anguish? And the answer is in the Savior unchanging. Jesus Himself. Not just what He can do for you today, but who He is in you forever. My faith is not in His response It's not in His actions or His reactions. No, Jesus is Himself the answer to the prayer of the afflicted. He is the recipient of the praise of Zion. He is the promise of sonship that is for you and me forever and ever. And part two is right on the way because He said so. And that's why verse 18 says this will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For good, for bad, for joyful, for painful, we praise the Lord because He's up to something here. And part two is on the way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the hope that You give us. And it is a supreme and awesome, awesome hope. Lord, that You even heard the cries that lifted up from Auschwitz. That You see humanity in the worst of the worst affliction. And You hear. And You promise and You respond. Father, I pray that You would pour out faith on us in this place so that even if my entire life in part one could be characterized as a life of affliction, It's worth it. I accept it as your sanctifying, purifying, preparing work in me for what's about to come. I pray, Father, for a heavenly, holy, eternal perspective 
so that we can walk in this life not bent over and sorrowful and bowed down and in pain, but eyes lifted up no matter what's taking place, filled with a faith that supersedes, goes beyond all comprehension, that peace that you promise, the peace of God in Christ Jesus. And I pray for all our prayers of healing and all our prayers of strength and all our prayers of deliverance from the challenges and promises of this life that they all, Father, would be salted with this truth. That it's all getting us ready. Ready to be home. Give us the joy that is set before us. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I pray for you if you have never become a Christian. And if you've never been saved. If you're not sure what being saved is. You know what being saved is? It's first and foremost being saved from the wrath of God for sin in the world. For sin in your life. I am saved from my sin. That is a huge thought for me. And if you've never been saved, you've never given your life to Jesus, you who are here every Sunday morning, you hear me make this call every week. I'm not going to stop. We're going to keep putting it out there. As long as there's anybody in this world not saved. And trust me, there are plenty who need Jesus. We put it out to you. If you want to be saved this morning, to give your life to Jesus Christ and know your place is set and firm in all eternity. Why don't you come and pray to Him. Repent of your sin and just turn your life over to Him. We'll guide you through that. We'll pray with you. And if you're a follower of Jesus and your head just keeps getting stuck in this world, why don't you come and pray about that? God, give me my eternal vision. Help me to look for part two. My eyes open to what you're doing and not just to what I'm feeling or enduring. And I pray that we will all, in Christ Jesus, persevere with joy and hope until we enter into the kingdom and see what He's got planned for us. Whatever your need is, why don't you come and let's pray together.